I don't know how many uh, how many folks in here this morning. Do y'all like those uh, those cop shows they do on TV, like the CSI's and uh, Criminal Minds? And thank you, Will. I'm with, I'm in agreement with you on this. Uh, Nick can attest to this fact. I used to like those shows until I started doing cop work, and then I realized that everything they do is completely wrong. And so I can't watch them with my wife because she gets irritated because I'm like, yeah, you can't do that. Now, what is this guy doing over? No, that's, no, no, no turn it off. I ain't watching it no more. Uh, but there is a concept that, um, there is a concept that we all know and are familiar with from watching these high-speed little shows like this, and that is modus operandi. It's a nice Latin term. Nick shakes his head in agreement, which basically means the method or the uh, manner of doing something. M.O. for short is what we're accustomed to, the old M.O. How, how a person goes about what they do. And so back on August the 5th, when we were doing the men's conference, there was a fella here, he's a fireman from uh, Kansas City. I tried to listen to what he had to say, but you know, firemen start talking, I stopped listening most of the time. Sorry, Donald. Um, but uh, he, he was reading through Luke chapter 22, and he he read across something that I'd probably read myself 37 times at least, and it just jumped out at me. It struck me. I was like, wait, what did he just say? And then I was trying to do this number to take a time out and get him to go back to what he had just said, but I guess he had prepared a, a different lesson, and he just kept going doing what he planned on doing that day and didn't stop to do what I wanted to do. And so then I got, had to go ransack Gloria's office and find writing utensils and make a note of it. Sorry, Gloria, if you're here. That's, that was me, if there was anything out of place. But um, in Luke 22, we, we have an interesting story here. This is the story where Jesus tells Peter, Hey, Peter, uh, you're going to deny me three times. And we always shoot past this one and go straight to Peter and Jesus and this dialogue they're having, but there's something he says in there that struck my ear as being a change in M.O. And I'm like, wait, why did this happen? What, what, what's going on here? So in Luke 22, verses 31 through 34, we read this. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times or deny three times that you know me. Now, what struck me about that is when Jesus says that Satan has asked for you, that Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. That is a complete change in what we understand he normally does. The impression that we get throughout other places in Scripture is that Satan is a wanderer. He goes to and fro seeking out victims of opportunity if we look at job chapter one and this is also echoed in chapter two but we're only going to read through the one in chapter one this is what job tells us now there was a day 
when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From growing to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And we get this same dialogue in the next chapter regarding Job as well. But the answer to the question of, hey, where are you coming from, is given to us by Satan himself. Well, I just, you know, I'm just going back and forth and to and fro and up and down and just kind of looking around. And, and then, of course, God offers up Job. Say, so, well, what about this guy over here? And then we have that whole discourse of, well, why wouldn't he worship you because you protect him and you've blessed him and so on and so forth. But we're told in Job on two occasions that he's, he's a, a nomad, a wanderer. He just kind of goes about looking for somebody that he can mess with for whatever purpose or reason. Another interesting point is that idea is collaborated by Peter himself, who we're discussing in Luke chapter 22, because he says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, be vigilant be vigilant uh, because your adversary the devil walks about like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour so he's just lurking around looking for for prey looking for somebody he wants to catch somebody who's struggling somebody who's depressed somebody who um, is given over to maybe narcotics or drugs or alcohol. He's looking for a victim, someone he can victimize who is at a low point in their life. Somebody in distress, I mean, whatever the circumstances may be that strikes his or piques his interest. But in the Luke passage, we're told that he specifically went to God and said, hey, I want a shot at that guy right there. I want him, Peter. That's a change, as I see it, that's a change in the pattern. Even in, even in 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, when we read about Hymenaeus and Alexander, this is what we're told by Paul. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I, Paul, delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So in this case, you have blasphemers who were handed over to Satan. So we have a nomadic wanderer that's going to and fro looking for victims, then in these fellows, it's like, yeah, you know what, we're just going to, they're blasphemers, just here you go, you can have these. But in Peter's case, it says, I want that guy right there. It's a change in pattern that I don't like. So I like for things to have a pattern, and I like for them to stay that way. So why is the obvious question. Why Peter? 
of all the 12, the likeliest candidate would be who? Judas. Of course, we know what Judas ultimately did, and Satan you know, messed with him and tempted him, and he betrayed Jesus. Why Peter, though? And that's what I want us to talk about a little bit this morning to answer, hopefully answer that question and potentially maybe get some insights into answering a question that we sometimes struggle with, which is why do good thing, or bad things happen to good people? Possibly. I, I, I just popped in my head real quick. That wasn't part of what I prepared to do. So, the deviation from the MO is in uh, verse 31 where he says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. So there was something about Peter that intrigued Satan. Now, I will, let me say this before I continue. I do not believe that Satan has the ability of foreknowledge. I'm just going to clarify that point before we move on. I don't think he, under, he can project that forward and predict anything. Otherwise, he wouldn't have crucified Jesus. You know what I'm saying? That, that was a death blow to himself. He, it, was, it was suicide on his part. And so I don't think he would have continued down that course if he understood what he was about to do to himself in having Jesus crucified. But there was something about Peter that he wanted to tamper with, to take a shot at. I, I don't know, a title bout. I don't know what he was doing. So the question is, why Peter? So a couple things we need to understand or we need to look at about Peter. Was it Peter's confession? In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, we read this. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Uh, others say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? People that I've been walking around and teaching every day for the last you know, couple of years that should know me better than everybody else who's saying these other things. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Could it be that Satan wanted a shot at Peter because Peter was more mature than his contemporaries? Because he was the first of the 12 to correctly put together in his head. Now, he wasn't the first person to do this, but he was the first of the apostles to do it. He put it together and said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Which means that he has some type of a better, higher level of understanding, as I see it. And he had a relationship with the father that was apparently a little bit stronger, which is, you know, hey, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven revealed this to you. So could it be because Peter was stronger, more mature, that Satan decided, hey, I want a shot at this guy to see exactly how mature he really is? 
Possibly. Could it be Peter's disposition that intrigued um, Satan? I personally like Peter's disposition. I like him a lot. John 18, verses 10 and 11. This is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament anyway. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. This is, of course, when they were trying to come in. They were going to arrest Jesus, right? The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? So we see a disposition in Peter where he's a fighter. And when they showed up to arrest Jesus, he was willing to defend. He knew he was one outnumbered. He could see who was there. They were armed as well. But he had zero issues apparently taking out this little sword and start whacking it, folks. I like this about Peter. He's a fighter. Could it be that because he is a fighter, because he's willing to go toe-to-toe, because he's willing to defend Jesus, that Satan's like, yeah, I want a shot at this guy right here. He's got a lot of faith. He has a special relationship with God. He's willing to fight. Bring him on. I want that guy. Another example of what I'm talking about. Almost shot past it. Another example of what I'm talking about, his disposition. He's a fighter, but he's also willing to say what needs to be said when it needs to be said. In Acts chapter 4, 8 through 12, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people of the, and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all that all the people of Israel by the name, and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter is willing to take out a sword and whack at folks, but he's also willing to stand in front of the Sanhedrin, the religious council, and tell them straight up, he is the cornerstone that you rejected, he is the person that you crucified, and he knows, I mean, we obviously know they ended up getting put in jail and beaten and all these other things. Uh, But... He's willing to go toe-to-toe with the establishment and tell them to their face that they're wrong, that they're sinners, that you did this. Again, we like Peter. He's, he's a bold guy. So could it be his disposition? Could it be his faith or his relationship with the Father, his maturity? Could it be his ministry? Now, again, Satan does not have foresight. I don't think he understood everything that was going to unfold with Peter and his life and his ministry, but I think there's clues. There were things about him that intrigued him. So he's smart, and we can figure out, well, this person's going to do good things at some point. We need to cut this off right now. But could it be his ministry? Paul, we understand, is the apostle as the apostle to the Gentiles. But Peter is the one that broke the ice. 
for the Gentiles. And, that, and that's bad for Satan because now you've got Christianity which is contained to a small group of people, the Jews, and now it's about to break out and go like a wildfire across the world, right? So in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, we read this. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open in an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending on him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice, a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times and the object was taken up. If we continue on down to Acts chapter 10, we get to 28 and 29. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for I asked then, and for what reason you have sent for me? Then Peter opened his mouth and said, I, or in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. So we understand the vision of the sheet and the animals and the critters on it and eating. We understand that's interpreted later as being, hey, the Gentiles are now clean. I accept the Gentiles. Take my message to the Gentiles, which we know Paul would ultimately champion and become what we recognize as the apostle to the Gentiles, but it was Peter who broke the ice in Acts chapter 10. We also know that it was Peter... Uh, that ultimately, I think I forgot to write this one down, he's the one that ultimately went to Jerusalem and convinced the Christians there that the Gentiles had been accepted. Because he went before the Jewish... Of the, um, the, he went before the Christian leaders in Jerusalem and said, hey, listen, this is what happened. The, fear, the Spirit fell on them just like it fell on us the, in Acts chapter 2. He didn't say it that way, but we understand Acts chapter 2. And so it's like, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, then apparently God's approved the Gentiles. Yay, let's go. Right? So could it be that it was his, um, that it was his ministry? Because he took, again, what was a localized, centralized, uh, uh, lack of better words, movement, and he took it outside the parameters that were there and, it, and sent it out around the world. Or at least started the process. Could it be that it was Peter's commission that really piqued the interest of, uh, of Satan? In John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19, we read there, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these other guys? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. 
He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you that when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you, were, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Then he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, the reason I say this is a special commission is he's talking directly to Peter. He's not asking James and John and, and the other guys this question, do you love? He's talking to Peter. He's saying, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I do. Are you sure? Do you love me? Yes, I do. Feed my sheep, tend my flock. A lot of responsibility is being placed on Peter here by Christ himself. Now, I'm not saying that he is the greatest of the apostles. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that you know, you've got to have a right hand, and it appears to me as though Peter's Jesus' right hand in this equation. And he's putting a special responsibility on Peter. Could it be that, that Satan, without having foreknowledge, but he could perceive there's something about this guy that I need to pay attention to, and therefore I want a shot at him. Was it Peter's, perhaps, what it, was it Peter's measure of the Holy Spirit? In Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, we read this, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them. But the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches. That at least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now I did not find, and you can correct me later if I'm wrong, um, I did not find a specific reference, and I checked two, three different translations, of someone being healed when his shadow passed over him. But they anticipated it. They anticipated it. They were hopeful that it, at the very least, Peter's shadow might fall upon me. It reminds me of the story of the woman with the issue of the blood in the Gospels, right? All she wants, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. So Peter, we know from this passage that there was a lot of healing going on. He was one of the ones. There was a lot of demon casting out going on. He was one of the ones. And people thought or at least believed or anticipated or wanted at the very least for his shadow to fall upon him. He was filled with the Spirit. Could it be that that is one of the reasons why Satan wanted a shot at him? 
I don't know. I don't think we're, we're not told specifically this is why. We're just told, I want this guy. He changed his pattern because he wanted to go after Peter specifically. These are just speculations on my part as to why when we take a look at his ministry and what he ultimately would do for the kingdom that makes me believe, yeah, okay, you probably should have taken this guy out a lot sooner because he did a lot of damage to you and to your kingdom. So, well, this is all great and good, but what's the point for us? Oh, I'm glad you asked this question because that's where I was ultimately going. I just want to document Peter's stuff first. What is the point? Well, the point is this. We have, we have the same spirit dwelling inside of us that Peter has dwelling inside, or had dwelling inside of him. Okay? Ephesians 4, 1 through 5. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, enduring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We have the same spirit occupying us that occupied Peter's, the same spirit that descended like a dove upon Jesus after his baptism. It's the same spirit that we see in Peter's ministry that emboldens him to go in front of the religious establishment and say, it's you, you're the problem, you did this, you're wrong. It's that same spirit that motivated him and drove him to go over to demonically possessed people and cast those demons out or to put his hands on people and heal them. It's the same spirit that we have. We, secondly, we have a ministry, just like he had a ministry. He had a calling. Jesus said to him three times, feed my sheeps, feed the flock, Tend the flock, right? I don't think sheeps is correct, but oh well. Second Corinthians eleven sixteen through twenty. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly viewpoint. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation. It is our job as God's ambassadors to reconcile people back to God through Christ. That's what Paul lays out here. That ain't good for Satan. Because every time we do that, we're, meant, we're shrinking his kingdom, right? He's like, numbers are dwindling. We are ambassadors. We have a ministry just like that's what Peter was doing. That's what Paul was doing. They were reconciling people back to God through Christ. Thirdly, thirdly, we have been given authority over unclean spirits. Luke 10, 17, 17 through 20. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said to them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing by any means shall hurt you. We have been given that authority. Now, in this particular passage, we understand we're not talking about just 12 apostles. If we want to put them in this group, we're talking about the 70. So there was the 12 plus a bunch of more. I don't know, 58 more. Sure. Right? We have been given authority over unclean spirits. We've been given authority to cast them out. This is something Satan don't like. Okay? That's the point. When we think about the change in MO that Satan wanted, or, well, I guess he did, didn't want it, he got it, which was to directly go after Peter. We understand that because of who we are, and because we have the same spirit, and because we have a similar, a similar ministry, and because we have authority and power over elements of his kingdom, should we be shocked? Should we be shocked if we encounter some of the same resistance that Peter encountered? Should we be shocked... If we harness this responsibi these responsibilities we have, should we be shocked that Satan himself in person goes to God and say, hey, I want a shot at Rod. Right? I want a shot at Micah. I want a shot at Kaylin. I don't think we should be shocked at all. Matter of fact, I think we should anticipate it. I think we should just assume that if we're walking in the light as he is in the light, if we're out there trying to reconcile people back to God, if we're out there exercising authority over unclean spirits and such, we should just go ahead and assume that we're going to get retaliated against at some point. Which takes me to what I said earlier, a possible explanation as to why bad things happen to good people. 
And over the last year and a half to two years, my wife can tell you this, I have come to the conclusion when I talk to people and they're telling me about all these horrible things going on in their life, I said, you know what, let me, let me explain to you probably why. You've either done something really good, you're about to do something really good, or you're currently doing something really good for the kingdom. And that's why you're not able, that's why you're currently not catching a break. Because Satan ain't happy with you right now. And he's been allowed, unfortunately, to test you. So the thing to do for us as Christians is understand that so that when we pray, we know what we're praying for and who we're praying against. I'm talking SEAL Team 6 type prayers. It's not generic praying. It's not just, oh, no. It's like, you know what? No, there's something going on. There's some kind of an entity that's responsible for this, and I want it rebuked. So God, rebuke it. Very deliberate and intentional prayer. And I will throw this on there. I forgot to read this part. That last little passage there where the 70 was excited about how the angel of these uh, things were subject to him. Verse 20 says this, Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your name is written in heaven. I didn't mean to leave that out. That's actually a pretty important thing. Okay. So it's more important that we have our names written in the book in heaven than it is that we can do these things however back to my original point uh, my original topic or what i wanted us to focus on today is the idea the fact that this is a change in satan's pattern he specifically went after somebody and i can't tell you exactly why but i can look at peter's life and ministry and say okay yeah it made sense makes sense to me that he would want to interfere with him early on and I think that we should anticipate the same for ourselves. If we're truly seeking and we're going out there and doing these things, there's going to be pushback. Because Satan's time is running out. His kingdom is getting smaller and smaller. He knows what his ultimate end will be. <laughs> he assured that himself when he crucified Christ. You know? We just need to anticipate. Um, just anticipate it. So, that being said, um, uh, if the um, if the deacons want to go ahead and uh, come up, we're gonna we're gonna take communion now. Um,